0: What if you really could understand what other animals were saying? Would it be a magical mystery tour or would it be a nightmare? The book... The Animals in That Country by Lara Jean McKay explores that question, and we have Lara Jean McKay here with us on In Context Today. I'm Patrice Jones, your host, coming to you from the grounds of Vine Sanctuary. We're going to talk to Lara Jean in a moment, but you know we always start the show thinking about an animal here at the sanctuary, and the animal I am thinking about today is a pig called Val. And I'm thinking about Val in part because pigs feature in a particularly poignant scene in this novel, which we read for Vine Book Club. But I'm also thinking about Val because just this week, Preschool children who participate in our Barnyard Buddies program, uh, which is sponsored by Dr. Bronner's, by the way, uh, came to visit the sanctuary specifically to see their pal, their buddy, Val in Barnyard Buddies classrooms, adopt an animal at the sanctuary, get a humane education lesson every month, um, and then have the opportunity to learn uh, about their buddy throughout the course of a whole school year. And this particular preschool, it's a virtual program, so anyone can participate, but this particular preschool happens to be right down the road from us. So uh, early one morning, a group of children in reflective vests walked down the road and up the hill to see their pal Val. And why did they want to come to see Val? Because they had written a poem for her and they had practiced it and they wanted to recite it to her. So I thought you might enjoy hearing the poem about Val since we're all about creative writing today. Uh, And the poem went like this. Val is a pig. She's very, very big. She wears hay on her head like a wig. And that is true, by the way. Her belly's so round, it touches the ground, and we're so glad that she was found. The children recited this to Val, who listened very carefully. Val is typically a fairly grumpy person. But she seemed to understand that these little ones were shining love at her, so she just stood and listened to them reciting the poem to her, and then when they finished, she gave them this gentle little grunt, like, good job. And uh, and so that's who's going to be on my mind today, as I am talking with our guest, Laura Jean McKay, author of The Animals in That Country. Laura Jean, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me here and for reciting that poem that those students wrote. It is just so stunning to hear about them reading that to Val and also Val's grunt reaction. That is, that's a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, it, it was, it was lovely. I've been telling everybody about it. And so I'm happy I get to tell you and, and everyone who's tuning in today. Um, so, so you have this book. It's not your only book. This is the book we're going to talk about today, and it's called The Animals in That Country, and it is a literally prize-winning novel that won the 2021 Victorian Prize for Literature, the 2021 Arthur C. Clarke Award, and numerous other awards, I believe rightly. Uh, having been um, enraptured while reading this book. Uh, And the premise of the book is that something called zoo flu hits Australia. So could you tell those who are tuning in, what is zoo flu?
1: Mm. I've been thinking a lot about zoo flu uh, lately, actually, because I'm just about to go back to Indonesia um, to be part of the Ubud Writers Festival, uh, which is so exciting for me. But years and years ago in 2013, I was there and I met a mosquito uh, and she bit me and gave me a disease called, called chikungunya, which means uh, that which bends up in Tanzania. And, uh, I, I had full body arthritis, and and fever and my skin turned red and my skin peeled off. And I really felt like I was turning into a mosquito. And at the same time as I was experiencing this, I was, I was starting work on the animals in that country. So it was really natural for the novel to sort of catch some sort of illness. But the illness within the novel, once, once things um, you know, enter the fictional world, they start to transform. And I think we know that when um we enter the world of of Non-human animals as well. Um, you know, things transform. They take. They take a different shape. Um, so, in the world of the novel, uh, this thing called zoo flu starts and. It's a little bit similar to what we've experienced with COVID. The main character, Gene, the human character, starts hearing about zoo flu, and you know reports on the radio. And one of the side effects of zoo flu is that humans can finally understand what other animals are saying. Not not um, telepathically. They're Little mouths don't move, um, but uh, with every bit of smell and pheromone that rises from them, with each twitch of the tail, um, which the, with the click of a claw, um, uh, communication is formed, and the humans are finally able to understand um, what that communication might mean, and they start to translate that into into some sort of discussion. The problem is that humans, being humans, uh, they really want the other animals to be saying "I love you" and you know be my friend forever. <laughs> but the animals aren't saying that. The animals are living their own lives. They have they they have things to do. They're not particularly concerned about humans until the humans inevitably encroach on their lives. And so there's a there's the violence and the humour and the weirdness um, in there. Uh, that is our relationship with other animals. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I loved about the
0: novel, that I think I can say this without giving anything away, uh, is that the way that the humans begin to be able to understand, at least some sense of what other animals are are communicating. It's not through words. I mean, like they translate it into the words in their own head, but they're picking up signals, and their signals aren't just sound. Um, and they aren't even just gesture, but they're also f- like, as you said, pheromones and um and who knows what else. And so you become aware when you're reading it and trying to imagine what this would be like of what a constant, not cacophony, but there's just a constant busyness of communication all around you that you, for the most part are, as a human are just not tuned into at all. So it's not just that you like don't um, notice or you might not accurately know of what, animals you're paying attention to in your purview are saying, but there's also all these other, what, what, what philosophers sometimes call liminal animals, um, insects and underground animals and birds that you're not even seeing. And they're all communicating constantly with each other and it's all happening all at once.
1: Yes. That's right. I remember, um, someone asking me oh which 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 particular animal are you writing about for your book and i just said all of them <laughs> like what how will you do that but i through the research um i i got the chance to find out amazing little facts about communication with different animals like i love that mice release gases. They, you know, that's part of their communication system is sort of this gas that rises from their body. I love, uh, the incredible, um, hypersenses that crocodiles have these very, very ancient techniques that they've learned. And this incredible, um, you know, sense of, of, um, feeling vibrations through the ground, um, especially for, for stalking. Uh, I love the idea that we have, what it is to imagine seeing the world through sonar but it did become very busy <laughs> in the writing of it and one way that I dealt with that was through the progression of the zoo flu uh, so way back in the day I'd would i been an aid worker and I'd worked during uh, the time of, um, of uh, avian of influenza and things like that so I had some sense of how Uh, epidemics and pandemics progressed and so when the humans contract this illness at first it starts with mammals which seemed fairly natural to me it seemed that the first uh, creatures that that humans would want to almost connect with would be other mammals. And so and so there's an awareness of what other mammals are are communicating. And then as the disease gets a little stronger and progresses, it might go to birds. And then at a further stage, you know, reptiles, fish. Um, and then when the insects happen, when, <laughs> when people start hearing the insects or, or you know, understanding what the insects are saying, that's usually when, you know, they're at a pretty advanced stage of illness and they're either really loving it they're you know they're almost on a trip at that point or you know they they can't handle it they they hide away Um, some people um you know um, you know use trip ending um drilling into their heads to try to try to release find some release and relief from this I love it that you
0: mentioned that piece of it because I, I had forgotten that piece, and I think it's it's while you were talking, I was just now I was thinking, and I, I know you know because you've talked about reading Val Plumwood that ecofeminists uh, diagnose uh, many of the problems that we're facing as as being to do with this unnatural uh separation uh, of of humans uh from the the rest of the world from the the rest of the larger than human world and um and it's a false separation uh, but it's a separation that's like super important to a lot of people, and it just occurred to me as you were talking. Like it's it is to many people. It's is to 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 enforce some sort of separation between yourself and non human animals is important enough that you might drill into your brain um, to stop it.
1: Yeah. Well, when I first told my partner about this idea, I I, I thought it would be quite a happy book. that <laughs> wouldn't. Have great if everyone could understand what animals are saying this is going to be so fun and he said but if we could understand what they're saying then then um you know we would truly know what we do to them and how could we live with ourselves with that within that knowledge uh of course you can you can gain that knowledge (laughs) without having uh without having a shared language but i think um you know to be able to operate in this world uh, as we know it, this this modern world, there is a cognitive dissonance that that is necessary for a lot of people just to be able to function. Because to you know to have the awareness of, of what of what's happening uh, with farmed, wild, um, you know animals that are considered uh, vermin, you know it would be too much. I think.
0: Well, and I think I think that's one reason why uh people who are animal advocates uh are, are really gonna resonate uh with this book because they're they're going to have already to a certain degree experienced some of of what the characters in the book experience just uh through their own efforts to empathically uh tune into what other animals are experiencing. Uh so I know I resonated and everybody I've talked to uh, has, has really resonated with the book, but I want to get back to this whole idea that you just mentioned where you thought it was going to be a happy book. Uh, and, and because, because, because already we know that, that you, you thought it was going to be a happy book, but uh, your publisher calls it dystopian. And, um, and we also know that the experience of, Feeling yourself turn into a mosquito played a significant role. So I'm just really interested in like, what's the whole process? By which you started with an idea and ended with really one of the most original works of fiction uh, that I've read and 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 these awards that it's gotten amplify that this is just an extraordinarily original
1: work I'm so how did that happen how did what was the process like for you Thank you. That means so much <laughs> coming from you because I, I hold you and your work in such high esteem. That's amazing to hear. Uh, so yeah, going back to that illness, that chikungunya that I had, which friends in Australia who couldn't pronounce it called it chicken dinner. <laughs> um it it um I mean it it it's amazing to feel the power of uh of an animal um, impacting you in that way. This tiny, tiny little mosquito who affected me so much uh, for so many years. And when I was feeling that metamorphosis, um, I I really, really felt, and I think I mentioned this in the book club, that um, I must be turning into a mosquito. That must be what is happening to my body. It was the only way I could understand how my body could change so much so quickly, especially with the skin peeling off, it felt like, you know, a renewal, um, you know, that I imagined the skin sort of becoming wings uh, mm. and the delirium, I really didn't feel like myself anymore and the unbelievably pain that was an unbelievable pain that was that was so extreme that uh, it almost didn't bother me. I couldn't seek any help. I would just sort of lie there um, you know, experiencing this other world, and so to to go through that sort of metamorphosis and to really feel the power of another creature is a very very special thing. It's not necessarily pleasant, but I think we often try to sit in this pleasantness all the time, and maybe that's a lot of what is wrong with the world. I think it isn't such a bad thing to experience a little bit of the discomfort that that the more than human world experiences on a regular basis that was very very powerful experience for me um and yeah so to to once once you get a sense of how how powerful um creatures like this can be um that we were talking about decentering earlier. You, you are yourself decentered. And once you've been decentered by another creature, and, I, and Val Plumwood talks about this so beautifully in, in um, her essay, Being Prey, after she was bitten by the crocodile, um, felt herself becoming prey, and then um, advocated very strongly um, for, for the crocodile's rights, right not to be killed. Um, I think I think the world changes then, and to be able to try to translate that in fiction is a really, really interesting experience. So after that, um every time I was talking about human animal encounter, I was thinking about that power dynamic and how that can actually change in an instant, um, you know de- depending on the scenario. Another, really impactful moment for me was when I actually travelled over to the US. I attended the court case um, with the Non-Human Rights Project, one of the early court cases, uh, which was, um, you know, advocating for two chimpanzees. And and that that was really incredible to to arrive in the US for the first ever time and walk straight into the Supreme Court and and, and hear a court case like that. And then I travelled down to Florida um, to um, the Great Apes Sanctuary, and I was allowed to walk through there. And that's a really interesting experience of power shift as well, because even though um, the the chimpanzees and orangutans are in an enclosure, as as they as they must be, the enclosure surrounds you. And so you, in a way, become the one in a cage and the chimpanzees and orangutans are all around you. And that, that, was, that was so interesting and very intimidating, actually. <laughs> um, there was a lot of calls, a lot of, you know, demonstration of, of long orange hairy limbs. Very beautiful. Uh, and then I turned a corner and I saw someone that I knew, But here I was in a completely different country. I'd never, never been to the States before. And I knew this, this, this person so well. And it was that moment where it's like, how do I know you? You know, you're thinking back through all all the places you've been. And um, this person was a chimpanzee called Ripley. And he was looking at me with what seemed like recognition. And I was looking at him and I could feel the, I could feel the, um, you know, the, the millennia of of separation between us, just just narrow until we were just two people going, how do I know you again? You're so familiar to me, so familiar. And again, whenever I wrote a character, even though Ripley and, and there are no chimpanzees in my novel, every other animal's in there, but not chimpanzees every moment i write an interaction between humans and other animals i'm thinking about the power of the mosquito and i'm thinking about that moment of deep recognition where species doesn't matter anymore at all and just connect
0: and i imagine that in 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 doing that you in imagining other people your characters being able to tune in to other animals you had to go on an empathic journey of imagination to imagine what it is they might hear if if they could tune in did that change you
1: in any way it really did. I mean, uh, when I started the book, uh, I wasn't even vegetarian anymore. I was, I was eating meat. And then, as I wrote the book, and I was doing my PhD at the same time, I was very lucky to be supported by a PhD program in the writing. So I, I was doing a lot of research at the same time. And of course, the more I researched, the more, the more I found out about the relationship. That we have with other animals, or the lack thereof, sometimes. And so, by the time I, you know, was a few years in, I I was vegetarian again, and then and then soon after, I was vegan. So my my life, my personal life, and the way that I acted in the world changed very dramatically. And that was that was really through the work of um, of animals that um, that I met along the way, uh, and also theorists in the in the field. I remember eating eating. <laughs> I was just about to say I remember eating Erica Fudge, a theorist, which is such an amazing <laughs> Freudian. Slip. Erica Fudge, if you ever watch this, I will eat you. But I was very influenced by what what she said, which was um, you know, we don't eat our subjects. You know, <laughs> you're you're writing about someone you don't eat them. It's just basic practice. I I thought, I thought that was a very, very good point. So yeah, so I, I changed a lot. And then, um, I, I had a, an early, uh, first draft, which was just terrible. And I showed my partner and he sort of said, look, I think, you know, this is like, this reads like a vegan manifesto and that's fine, but I don't think it's what you want to do. And also implying it was really my guilt draft, you know? Um, And then after that, and after I'd I'd changed uh, my way of living, I think I could just really go into character. I could have a lot of fun with, with the human character um, who, you know, is very much not aware <laughs> of of her uh, eating and living practices, uh, and I, I, I love can... the part of the novel where the
0: protagonist trolls vegans online, um, and and ke- keeps getting kicked off of platforms for trolling, for trolling this particular vegan who who I imagine is you. Um, you
1: yeah. <laughs> <and Yeah, laughs> had your is character, my trolling character trolling. You. trolling. Oh. <laughs> the character is pulling me. <laughs> but in terms of empathy, I think, you know, once you start living your novel a little bit, or at least living the, the theories and the um, themes um, that you're trying to get at in your novel, then it becomes much easier to imagine yourself uh, into the world of other species. Um, if If you're Sitting there with all that guilt. I'm not saying that it can't be done, but I don't know many people who've gone through the process of writing a big work like this. It took, You know, it took me seven years and I, I did a doctorate. There was a lot around that. I don't know many people who've gone through that process and not come out, um, you know, with some sort of um, ethical reckoning of some sort. I don't want to say I love it that it took you seven
0: years, but I sort of love it that people will hear that. Because I think it's very easy for um, to imagine when you you pick up a, a a work like this, uh to imagine that it came to someone um in a bolt of inspiration or 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 at least, you know, the first draft was pretty close to this and then you were just fixing it. But this idea that that actually you were working on it for seven years and the first draft was trash and uh, and and you had to reckon with yourself while you were reckoning with the characters is, I think, just a great example of praxis or. Not just arts, but activism too. This just like having an idea and, and 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 going with it at least for a while to to see what happens, but then being willing to say, "Oh, wait, this isn't working." uh so rather than just like keeping pushing on with this let me let me regroup and try it this way and oh well that's not quite working either and okay now I got to try it this way but oh no if I do it this way I've got to change myself too um right I mean that's activism that's good activism and that's good art
1: too absolutely yeah and I'm a big fan of of non harmful mistake um you know if you can make mistakes in a in a non invasive and non harmful way and and that's what I love about art that we can look at these scenarios um even where where characters get hurt or go through things um outside of laboratory and 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 other situations where in real life this would you know this would be horrific but we can imagine ourselves into these scenarios and work through them and 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 think well what, what is the best way through? Uh, But as I was writing the novel, I realised that I was writing two works, really. I was writing a gritty realist novel about uh, a woman called Jean who is just struggling a bit she gets along with animals better than she does with other humans uh she you know she loves a drink and a smoke and and a car <laughs> and the open road uh, and then there's this speculative fiction novel where where um there's interspecies communication and and how you imagine um uh non-human voices onto the page and bringing those two together was what took a long time but also there was a lot of there was a lot of pressure i put a lot of pressure on myself because i wanted to do justice to the animals that i was writing about um, I wanted to honor them and also there's all these wonderful theorists <laughs> and I knew that people like you would probably read it one day and I wanted to you know get it right as much as you can get literature right. I at least wanted to um, be able to talk to people like you on on in spaces like this um, and feel and feel you know happy about <laughs> my contribution <laughs> were there were there were there animals?
0: I mean, I know you did a lot of research into things like gases coming off of mice, uh, but but were there animals in your daily life who, you know, ended up in the novel uh, or who you particularly wanted to make sure you represented?
1: I suppose writing the birds was really special for me because, um, for the first few years of the novel, I was really quite laid up on, on the couch, you know, quite ill and we'd just moved out of the city, out of Melbourne, uh, to a, um, a seaside place and it was, um, in a uh, a bird flight pathway so there was a, a little wetlands and especially the pelicans um you know who anybody who's who knows pelicans they are just huge they would um, flight train their young over our house uh and and so I spent a lot of time looking up at the bellies of pelicans <laughs> flying over big pelicans and smaller pelicans as they as they trained in flight and then on really windy days the the big pelicans, adult pelicans would leave the young at home and get out and just surf the winds. So that was uh I really wanted to uh to add that that joy of of flight and and birdhood <laughs> in the book and I really really enjoyed working um particularly with with the bird communication especially with crows as well. I spent a lot of time looking at crows. But another animal that uh really featured and she really entered the book um Unbidden, (laughs) I I was. I was. I had an artist residency at a um, at a a wildlife park right up in the north of Australia, in the Northern Territory, which is probably like the states. It's a bit like being in another country. Um, very hot, and uh, there were dingoes in this sanctuary, and I would hear them call in the morning and and call out the day every day. This the howl of the Australian dingo is just and i start the book with this the most haunting saddest most beautiful sound i think i've ever heard and there was a particular dingo uh called elsie who lived there with her brothers and while i would go up to their enclosure and 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 visit them in the evenings especially and the two brothers would would play up and and bark and you know be very very um fun and elsie was like nothing to do with you. She would see me and just head out into the bush, you know. She wasn't interested at all. And, of course, me being a human, I'm immediately like, oh, you're interesting. (laughs) I want to lean closer to you, you know. It's a classic invasive human trait. But she just fascinated me. And um, even though Sue, the dingo uh, protagonist in the novel, isn't Elsie, Elsie certainly, um, you know, inspired Sue. Sue. And Sue, once Sue entered the text, she just made sense of so many things for me. She turned a really raggedy, weird draft into a story, into a um, a journey and a life. Uh, she made sense of the human character gene. They mirror each other in the text. They go along on this sort of what's been described as a uh, interspecies Thelma and Louise-like <laughs> road trip. Um, and talking about power again when I think about the mosquito uh Sue really um shows her power um and and the beautiful way that that she chooses to um, use it and and not not necessarily abuse it as well she really tries to draw the human character into her kinship um constantly through the novel um even as she gains power as a character and as a dog.
0: (laughs) Uh, I hope people read this book because um, I'm I'm feeling moved again, just as you're mentioning Sue. And I love it that you refer to her as a protagonist as well, because really she and the human protagonist are the, they're both the main characters. And, and I was thinking when you were describing the book as being, you know, on the one hand, there's this story of Jean. And on the other hand, there's this sort of sci-fi or speculative fiction, but it's also super noir um right particularly in the ending which we will not give away um and so i really hope that people will will read this so that they can meet sue um and they can meet gene and they can imagine uh themselves um in in that country you've before we go i do i gotta ask you because i think we're out, out of time if or nearly, but, but, but I got to ask you, you mentioned, you've talked about how writing the novel changed you, but I'm wondering if you've heard from readers about if reading the novel has changed them.
1: Yeah. I I mean, anybody with a pet um, who has, who lives with a companion animal uh, I've heard from so many people saying, um, I can never look at my cat the same way again. I thought I knew what she was communicating, and now I I really wonder. Um, you know, my dog has changed for me forever. Uh, so, especially companion animals, and another uh, another thing that seems to strike people is um, what we might call the pig scene, uh, which you know is very <laughs> very uh, good to talk about today. Um, mm. Uh, So there's a scene in the novel where the protagonists come across a truck full of pigs and the people driving the truck are just losing their minds. They can't handle the pigs calling out from, from the back of the truck because suddenly they, they've they got zoo flu and they can understand. And so they just take off and it's up to the protagonist to release the pigs um, so that they can get past this huge truck. And as they release the pigs, they realize the pigs are calling out more, more. and And Jean, the human is sort of like, what is this more? And then she recognizes hope in one of the other pigs as, as the pig is released and seeing and being on grass for the first time and rolling in natural mud for the first time and heading towards water. And Jean realizes she's also experienced, you know, a version of hope of, of wanting something that you don't even know <laughs> exists, <laughs> you know, which is, which is something about being in life, being alive. It is it is true. I mean, we have um, here at the
0: sanctuary, we have, um, Frequently welcomed survivors of egg factories, who um, from hatchery, you know, who have gone, you know, from hatchery into egg factory, um, and 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 really had no when they when they there's they've not experienced anything else, and yet there is still within their bodies this hope from something else and something more. Uh, so I think yeah that 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 scene and and there's a beautiful uh, 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 the the book mostly is about uh the animals in the book are are, are mostly non-domesticated animals. Um uh but uh there's also there's also a, just a very brief glimpse into into the feelings of cows uh that I I found uh, deeply moving um as someone who knows as, who knows cows. Um, and I and I, I imagine you endeavoured really hard to to do right by those cows.
1: Yeah, I I, I later once I finished the book lived uh, near cows and um and I was I felt uh, so relieved that I'd made. The cows in, in my book angry for a very long time. I was writing these cow scenes and the dialogue, and the cows were sad. You know, I think I think cows present as very sad seeming animals, um, you know, to, to a lot of people. And and then I thought about what it might be like to have your children taken away over and over again, and as well as a deep sadness. I thought I would just be so angry. And so to give give these cow characters anger and to have them express that um, you know probably they're they're almost the angriest creatures in in the novel um you know that that felt um like it was the right thing to do of course I don't know how cows really feel and I can't imagine what it is to go through that but but it felt like right
0: I mean they got a right to be angry so angry and and uh, I mean my our experience I mean I, Nobody knows all the cows, but but um and there is a way that cows are so among cows are they're they're very gentle uh creatures. Uh but the survivors of, of dairying who come uh many are really angry. Uh and there there are and others, it's 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 a it's a sadness that's that's lapsed into depression. Um mm. But then but then when that lifts, then you, you can get to know their personalities. Uh, better. So, so we see
1: both sad and mad. I I love that you brought up rights there. Um, You know, it reminds me of uh, the philosopher Vinciane Dupree's work um, in, into the right to want um, Mm -hmm. where she says that every creature has a right to want even a creature who is, um, you know, in an incarcerated situation in almost, almost devoid of all rights. The right to want is, is there always. Uh, and and I think that's a really beautiful way to explain agency, um, and and also going back to that idea of of the right to hope, the right to to imagine your imagine a, a life outside of <laughs> the one that you or even yourself.
0: not be able to imagine it, like to want, want something it. that you can't even imagine. And I feel like it's not just that this is something that hens and egg factories experience who um but but i think we do too Uh, like there's a there's a way that um how do i try to say that it's very hard for us to imagine otherwise uh and and the way that humans have constructed our relationships with the larger than human world right now deprives us of so much. I mean, yeah, we get all this power over, but we're deprived of these rich networks of, of relationships. And and I do think that people want it, even though they can't ima- even though they can't imagine what it would look like.
1: Yes, yes. Before we started um, talking. Today, you you mentioned trying to get out <laughs> and be surprised by by what you know the wild world. You know you might meet um, someone um, that that you didn't expect, uh, and and for me, um, you know, going bushwalking if you're lucky enough to be able to do that wherever you live, uh, and and that moment where you get to unexpectedly see another creature uh, is just so, so thrilling. And um, yeah, I mean, such a trip in a way. It's, um, it takes you to, to another place. And um, I guess I guess it also fulfills that something that you don't, as you were talking about, Patrice, something that you don't even know that you want, <laughs> that contact with, with the more than human world. Well, thank you
0: so much, Um, not only for joining us uh, today, but for writing this book, which I'll say the title again in case anyone hasn't yet uh, noted that they plan to read this book. It's The Animals in That Country uh, by Laura Jean McKay, endorsed by Patrice Jones and by the Vine Book Club, Speaking of which, if you're interested in joining the Vine Book Club, you can visit Vine Sanctuary online uh, at vinesanctuary.org. If you're interested in past episodes of In Context or show notes about this show, you can also visit vinesanctuary.org. I want to thank you again, uh, Lara Jean, uh, for joining us and for enabling imagination. I want to thank Sarah Jane Blum. Uh, for setting all of this up. And I want to thank everybody who's tuned in for the work of imagination you've already been doing just listening to this and the imagination that you're going to be exercising going forward. Thank you so much. See you next time. Bye. Bye Bye.